0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. The outline of this message, speaker, message title, and series can be found in the show notes or the details page. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or on our church website at Bethlehem505.com. And now, here is the message. Turn your Bibles to Job chapter one. Now you might notice that 31 is actually our text, but we're gonna start out in verse one in just a few moments. Also encourage you to get your sermon notes page out to follow along as well. A school teacher injured his back and had to wear a plaster cast around his upper body. It fit nicely under his shirt and was not noticeable to the average person who saw him. Well, on the first day of the new semester at school, uh, with the cast still under his shirt, he found himself assigned to the roughest, most rebellious students in the school. So he walked confidently into the classroom uh, that day, a rowdy classroom, he walked over to the window and opened up the window, and then he sat down and started working on some things at his desk. Well, it was a windy day, he knew that, and uh, his tide began to blow very noticeably as he sat at his desk. So in the view of all of his rowdy students, he stood up, grabbed a stapler, stapled his tie to his chest. And they say that discipline was never a problem after that day. Now, someone listening later to this podcast uh, will likely repeat the popular mantra, you're encouraging toxic masculinity. Well, I would much rather have that wise, strong, humorous man leading a class of rowdy kids (laughs) than the drag queens who are being routinely brought into children's libraries all over the nation right now. So since our culture continues to descend further and further into moral confusion and chaos, and since I am a Christian and a preacher who accepts the Bible as the inspired and authoritative word of God, Let me state the obvious. God created the heavens and the earth. God created human beings in his image. God established two genders, male and female. And God ordained the family, including motherhood and fatherhood. And both motherhood and fatherhood are beautiful and necessary. Irma Bombeck, uh, many years ago wrote a book entitled When God Created Mother. a very creative uh, thing. that has been used a lot. Paul Harvey at one point, the radio commentator, wrote something called So God Made a Farmer. Well, someone I think borrowed from that basic pattern, that idea, and wrote this uh, in more recent years. So God made a father. At the dawn of time, God, uh, God looked down on all he had made and said, now I need a caretaker. So God made a father. God said, I need someone to teach children to fish and to ride a bike without training wheels and to play catch in the backyard. It must be someone who's tough enough to run a chainsaw and wield a machete and yet gentle enough to join his little girl and her dolls for tea. So God made a father. I need need someone to bring the car around when it's raining so everyone else can stay dry. Someone who will keep jumper cables in his truck just in case he needs to help a stranger. I need someone to notice practical things like how, to, uh, how, like how the tread on the tires is wearing and if the weather stripping around the front door needs replacing for no one else will. I'll create someone who's strong enough to open a tightly sealed jelly jar and tall enough to place the angel on top of the Christmas tree. Someone who will be gracious enough to let his son fish the best fishing hole or to let his daughter win at least one hand of gin rummy. Yes, he will struggle to find his glasses and keys, <laughs> God thought, but I'll help him find time for the important things, like tumbling with the kids in the den floor, or saying, I'm proud of you, son, or giving mama a hug. So God made a father. God said, I need someone brave enough to carve the Thanksgiving turkey for no one else seems to want the job. Someone who's not afraid to go into grandma's dark cellar or to check on what goes bump in the night or to remove the dead mouse from the mouse trap. One of my primary jobs in the Claiborne household. Thank you, honey. I need someone wise enough to know when to let his child fail. Someone who will pick her up, dry her tears, and say, Honey, I know you can do it. Give it another try. I need someone who listens more than he talks, who will stand by his family through laughter and tears, tornadoes and snowstorms, good times and bad. Someone who will love his kids and love their mother even more. So God made a father. God said, I need someone to provide for the family, someone who will get up early and stay up late and never complain. I need someone who's willing to make unpopular decisions and stand by them, someone to provide authority and discipline as well as love. I need someone with broad shoulders, broad enough to carry a little child around town and broad enough to uh, pull more than his fair share. Yes, I need someone who will work the second shift or take second best or play second fiddle so that his family can have it better than he did. I need someone who is willing, willing to man up and provide the love, support, and strength his family will so desperately need, so God made a father. Sometimes he will not feel worthy of the love his family gives him. There will be times when he fails to live up to my ideal standard, but when his family needs him, he will show up or give up or do whatever needs to be done. Yes, that's exactly what I need, thought God as he shook his head. A father to love my children, and if necessary, to lay down his life for them. Someone, well, someone like me. So God made a father. I like how that ends, someone like God. That's a real man. Someone who strives to be like God. A righteous man. One of the highest compliments ever paid to a human being in the entire Bible is in Job chapter 1. And that compliment appears twice. Once you look closely in Job 1 at how God describes this man named Job. It says in the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. What a compliment. <laughs> Verse 8, God's in a conversation with Satan. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? And here he pays the compliment again. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And what follows in in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 is an open season attack by the devil on Job and his family in an attempt to drive him away from God. Job lost virtually all his wealth and all 10 of his children. Think about that, dads, on Father's Day. Well, then you come in the book of Job to chapter 3, almost up to the end of the book, and most of the book is an interaction between Job, who's suffering so much, who has lost so much, and his friends. And if I could summarize their basic approach to this man who has lost everything, virtually. Here's basically what they were saying to Job. Job, my boy, you are a filthy, disgusting sinner, and that's why God is punishing you. That's why you're suffering so much. You're a bad guy, Job. Now, we already know that was not true because God himself, twice in chapter 1, had said Job was blameless and upright. So in chapter 26 through 31, Job gives his final response to his accusing friends. And in chapter 31, our text for today, Job made some absolutely astounding moral claims from his heart that I wish every man in this room today could say with total honesty. In this chapter, we see Why God called Job a good and righteous man. Here's what we learn from Job. First of all, a righteous man fears God. A righteous man fears God. Remember, both those compliments in chapter 1. He fears God. See, we don't talk much anymore in the American church about fearing God. Some of us are old enough to remember when that was a common expression. If you wanted to compliment someone as a godly person, you would say they were God-fearing. But shame on us now because that, that phrase, that idea, is always considered a very positive thing in Scripture. Fearing God. If you'll flip over with me to the book of Proverbs. Let me just read a series of a few passages where it uses this idea of the fear of God as a wonderful thing we ought to all strive for. Proverbs one, verse seven says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Chapter two, verse five, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Chapter nine, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Chapter 10, verse 27, Listen to this, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. And finally, in chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, it says this, he who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death And then we go back to Job 31, and he says something interesting in verse 23 toward the end of his discourse. He says, "For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of His splendor, I could not do such things." Job was saying, "There are certain things I'm just not going to do in life because I fear God. I take him seriously." You See, a righteous man fears God because he understands two things. He understands that God is our maker. Verse 15, right in the middle of this chapter, Job says this. He asks a question. He's talking about these friends and and to these friends. Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? You see, Job clearly saw God as his maker, He's echoing the idea from Psalm 139. God knit me together in my mother's womb and he knit you guys together in your mother's womb. And were Job alive today, I believe he would be solidly, outspokenly pro-life because he was a righteous man. And Job would defend the unborn because he knew God formed us in our mother's womb. See, he knew that we were all made by the same in the same way by God, male or female, rich or poor, light-skinned or dark-skinned. We are equal in worth in God's eyes. We are equal in basic rights. We are equal in that we are answerable to our maker, and we need to live with a healthy fear of him because he's our maker. But he also understands something further that's connected to that. He understands that God is our judge, That is not many people's favorite image of God because the word judge implies, well, judgment and consequences. But one of the primary images and teachings and messages of the Bible is that sin has consequences. Job had an incredible sensitivity to the fact that he was answerable to God. If you look at verses 2 through 4 in chapter 31, Job writes, for what is man's lot from God above, his heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? In other words, he knew that sin brings God's wrath and God sees everything. Verse five and six, Job says, if I have walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. In other words, he says, God's analysis is what really matters, not other people and how they view us. Verse 13 and 14 says, If I have denied justice to my men servants and maid servants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Job knew that God will someday confront each of us and we someday will each give an account Then verse 28 simply says, then these would be sins to be judged. He knew God will judge. He understood the principle later revealed in Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And that's why Job writes what he did in verse 23 that we already saw. For I dreaded destruction from God and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. God's fear or Job's fear of God's judgment kept him from doing certain improper things. See, a healthy fear of God can save our life and it can save our soul. A righteous man fears God. So, men, I want to ask you today to honestly answer are you God fearing? Are you God fearing? But, secondly, Job teaches us in this chapter in his testimony that a righteous man avoids evil. Again, verse 23, for I dreaded destruction from God and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. And remember that compliment in, verse, uh, in chapter one, twice, Job shunned evil. He shunned evil. See, at times you and I can be guilty of trying to live a decent life while seeing how close we can get to the edge. <laughs> it's kind of that idea of, you know, one Christian will say to another, well, can I... If, if I'm a Christian, can I do this and, and like, you know, and the implication is and still go to heaven? <laughs> can I do this? How about this? How about this? Not Job. Job tried to stay as absolutely far away as, from sin as he could. You know, one of the ways he did that was with his thought life. And I love verse one, how he starts this entire chapter. Job writes, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Notice how serious he was. He made a covenant. He made an agreement with his eyes. It's almost like Job sat down one day and said to his eyes, now eyes, there are certain things you absolutely will not look at, period. You will not look at these things. Friends, do you realize how much sin could be avoided simply by making and keeping an agreement like that. Eyes do not look at certain things. I made a covenant with my eyes, he writes, not to look lustfully at a girl. See, Job obviously understood the reality and danger of lust, and he also understood how the male brain works. He knew what could follow, And then what could easily follow after that? And then what could follow after that? And what could follow after that? He understood the principle revealed much later in James chapter 1 in verses 13 through 15, where it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are... Now notice this digression here. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Job understood that principle and says, I'm not even taking the first step in that direction. Not the first step. Do you realize how many rapists are rotting away in prisons because they began innocently with a glance at pornography when they were eight or nine years old? If we are serious about avoiding sin, then we need to forbid ourselves from lots of places on the internet and lots of network television and lots of music videos and Facebook videos and many video games. If we are serious, we need to forbid ourselves. We also need to recognize where other simple actions might lead. That first small lie we tell often leads to many others. That first inappropriate touch, that first cigarette behind the barn at age 10, that first sip of alcohol, that first use of marijuana, that first day without prayer, that first day without reading the Bible. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Now, down starting in verse 7, he explains this a little further. He says, if my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, we're coming back to that in a minute, Or if my hands have been defiled, and then he says there's going to be some consequences, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her, for that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. But the key to me is in verse 7 If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, He's saying, I don't even want to get close to sin. Not just because I might get caught, but because it's wrong. And it might lead me to hell. (laughs) Verse 7, he goes, if my heart has been led by my eyes. That's not good. Please note, our heart should not be led by our eyes. Our heart should not be led by our eyes. It should be the other way around. It should be our heart, like in Job's case, telling our eyes what to do and setting limits and instructions for our eyes. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. A righteous man avoids evil. And sometimes that requires drastic steps in our lives because we know where those things, certain things can lead us. And since it's Father's Day, let me read this old poem by Edgar Guest, reminding us fathers, grandfathers, that there are little people watching. There are little eyes upon you, and they're watching night and day. There are little ears that quickly take in every word you say. There are little hands all eager to do anything you do, and the little boy who's dreaming of the day, he'll be like you. You're the little fellow's idol. You're the wisest of the wise. In his little mind about you, no suspicions ever rise. He believes in you devoutly. He holds all that you say and do. He will say and do in your way when he's grown up like you. There's a wide-eyed little fellow who believes you're always right. And his ears are always open and he watches day and night. You are setting an example every day in all you do for the little boy who's wanting to grow up to be just like you. A righteous man avoids evil. But thirdly, Job teaches us that a righteous man lives honestly. Look what he writes again in verse five and six. He says, if I have walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, Let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. Notice the wording. He says, if I have walked in falsehood, that implies a pattern of life of a lot of falsehood and dishonesty. You see, honesty isn't just an issue of merely telling the truth. It's a matter of living honestly. See, we can be deceptive, and, and we can be living dishonestly without ever verbally verbalizing a lie. <laughs> in other words, we're to be what we claim to be. We're to be genuine. It means not being two-faced. I love the old story about Abraham Lincoln, who was known for his honesty. He was in the midst of a political debate, and he was called two-faced in the debate. <laughs> And in response, Lincoln looked out to the audience and asked with wit and humility, he said, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you, if I were two-faced, would I be wearing this one? (laughs) Are you two-faced? Is what people see in this building in you the same thing they see in you when you're in traffic and at school and at work or in a dark corner? or is 505 Bethlehem Road the place where we dress up and lie to each other <laughs> because we're a totally different person. Proverbs 11 verse 3 says the integrity of the upright guides them but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Duplicity, it's the opposite of integrity and honesty. So I want to ask you are you living honestly? Not just do you always tell the truth, but are you living honestly? Someone has said integrity doesn't mean we are perfect. It just means we are genuine. And that includes openness and confession, which... Job implies in, in verses 33 to 34, he says, if I have concealed my sin as men do by hiding my guilt in my heart because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans then I, that I kept silent and would not go outside. He implies, you know, no, I wasn't hiding things. I say things that, that I need to confess. So let's speak honestly. Let's live Honestly. Let's be real. Let's be righteous. A righteous man lives honestly. But fourthly, a righteous man treats others with love and respect. There's a series of of, uh, passages here where he, uh, I think, forces us to ask some questions by what he says about himself. Job 31, 13 through 14. If I have denied justice to my men servants and maid servants when they had agreements against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to an account? It sounds like Job was saying, I treat my employees fairly. So I ask you today, how do you treat your coworkers and employees or employers? Verse 38 through 40. Job says, if my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and weeds instead of uh, barley. Are you fair with others? Are you considerate at work? Are you a gossip or a manipulator? Verse 16 through 22 Notice what he says here. If I've denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but, but from my youth, I reared him as, a, as would a father and from my birth, I guided the widow. If I have, not, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a, a needy man without a garment and his heart does, did not bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep, If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing uh, that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from my shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. Could you write all that? Are you generous with others in need? Would your arm fall off because of your selfishness? Verse 29 to 32, he says, If I have rejected uh, rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him. I, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life. If the men of my household have, have never said, Who has not had his fill of Job's meat? But no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. Are you a hospitable person? Is your home open to other people? Are you kind? Do you enjoy sharing and meeting people's needs? Do you treat people with the love and respect that you like to be shown? A righteous man treats others with love and respect. But finally, a righteous man maintains a healthy view of things. Verse 24 to 28 is all about material things. Job says, if I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. That's kind of like an American philosophy, doesn't it? If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained, if I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. This world, if you hadn't noticed, is filled with people who believe their security is in how many things they can accumulate, how many things they can buy, how many things they can build, how much better their things are than everyone else's. And soon their whole life begins to revolve around that. And it's dangerous to trust in things. It's intriguing that after it describes this in verse 24 and 25 about trusting in wealth, it says in verse 28, these would have been sins to be judged for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Materialism, greed, he says, sins to be judged, unfaithful to God. You know, these verses in a way seem like an odd section. If you hadn't noticed, in 24 and 25, it's talking about trusting material things. And verse 26 and 27 it talks about worshiping the sun and the moon. That <laughs> sounds like those aren't, aren't connected, but there's a definite connection because any of that can become an idol, That re- anything can become an idol that replaces God. I have seen many people through the years who worship their bank accounts or their house or their big fancy truck, or their wardrobe, or you fill in the blank. They worshipped it. Job had enjoyed tremendous material wealth at one time in his life, but Job had learned the hard way in chapter 1 how temporary possessions are. Because in one day, one stinking day, Job lost it all. And you know what? Fires can do the same things thing to our things. And tornadoes can. And floods can. And recessions can. You know, Job could testify to the truth of Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, because it happened in his own life. He goes, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. and That's exactly what happened in one day in Job's life. Job says, I'm not trusting in things. Are you trusting in things or God? Are you serving things or serving God? Bruce Wilkinson put it this way. He said, when you serve God, you are using God's money to accomplish his wishes. But when you serve money, you are using God's money to accomplish your wishes. Let me repeat that. When you serve God, you are using God's money to accomplish his wishes. When you serve money, you are using God's money to accomplish your wishes. So, I ask you, who or what are you serving? Who or what is filling your life? There's an old, old, simple little poem. It goes like this. The ones who seek their happiness by buying cars and clothes and rings don't seem to know that empty lives are just as empty, filled with things. Matter of fact, you look at a lot of people who are obsessed with getting more, they are some of the emptiest people on this planet because they keep thinking, if I get this, if I get this, if I get this, then I will be satisfied, then I will be filled. They don't seem to know that empty lives are just as empty, filled with things. So what's filling your life? One of the most haunting needed passages in the New Testament is in 1 John 2, where it talks about these uh, things we desire. It's almost a, a, a... statement of what happened in Genesis 3 and what's been happening ever since. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And here it is. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. We're gonna leave that up for just a couple minutes because I want you to ponder that and ask, what are you clinging to? What will you hold on to when all your stuff's gone? What are you going to hold on to then? It says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. See, where you and I spend eternity is determined by our choices in this life. Who we choose to worship, who we choose to serve, who we choose to follow, who we choose to trust. The book of Job opens up with these words. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So after we've looked quickly through Je- uh, Job chapter 31, I want to ask you, could you write Job 31 this afternoon about yourself? Could you sit down and write Job 31, say it out loud as you say, and say, this is true of me. If not, the question then becomes for all of us what will we seek to change and do differently so that we can write Job 31 someday in our life and really mean it? See, the amazing thing is that God allows each of us to choose our course in life and to change our course when necessary. Isn't that amazing? God allows each of us to choose our course in life, but he also allows us to change our course when necessary, which could be today. And he sent his son Jesus to open up the way back to God when we get off course. (laughs) The way of forgiveness, the way of repentance, a new start. Job 31, the last thing in the chapter says this, The words of Job are ended. Someday, our voice will be silent. Someday, my voice is going to be silent. Your voice is going to be silent. So that makes the question, the one at the bottom of your page, important. How will God and others describe me? See, that's what I need to be thinking about. Someday my voice, you know, I can kind of defend myself. I can still make changes now. I can do a course correction in my life now through repentance. But someday I will have taken my last breath and my words will be ended and I'll no longer be able to speak and try to convince people who I am or whatever. (laughs) And then it will be up to God and others who describe me and my life. So I ask us, How will God and others describe me? As you and I wrestle with that question, we're going to be singing an old chorus called Change My Heart, O God. It's long been a favorite song of submission for me. Because it's saying, you know, God, I need you to change my heart and make it what it ought to be. And that's an acknowledgement that our heart is where all these decisions are made and these course corrections. It's in our heart. You know, then our heart begins to tell our eyes what our eyes can or cannot look at and where our feet can go and what our hands should be involved in, our heart. So where's your heart today? And are you willing, do you have the courage and the humility and submission to really mean these words in the song, change my heart, oh God. In whatever way it needs to be changed. So whatever, whatever that is, you know what it is, and, and God knows what it is. Um, but sometimes it's helpful when we publicly, maybe not to get specific, maybe get specific. where we say in front of others, you know, I need prayer because I'm struggling with this or that, or I want to change this, or I want to do better in this area. And then others can encourage us and hold us accountable. So during this time of, of singing and submission, let's think about our lives, our heart, where our heart is. Let's think about whether we could write Job 31 honestly in our life right now or what we need to do to be able to do that. And maybe the, the first step for some of you is, is making Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life for the very first time, of submitting your heart to him and saying, I've messed it up, but I believe Jesus came and died on the cross for me and I, my sins can be taken away and I can have a brand new start, a new course in life and a new destination in life through the blood of Jesus. And I'm willing to confess my faith in Him. I'm willing to repent and do it His way. I'm willing to bury my life in uh, that water grave that the Bible calls baptism and say, "It's it's all gone, it all belongs to Him now. I'm on a new course in the power of Jesus. My heart is His. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.